When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast by the young, hip, and lay editors of American Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by Zach Davis. And it's good to be back with you, Ashley. You look a lot better. You sound meh. Only a couple packs a day. Yeah. <laughs> Last week I mentioned I was by myself because you, your voice sounded like you had turned into a pack-a-day smoker for like yeah. 50 years or something. I, I'm glad to see you're on the up and up. Yeah. Uh, a little bit residual congestion, so if I sound a little off, I apologize, but I am feeling well enough to enjoy this uh, nice drink we have today. Yes, we are drinking Aperol Spritzes this week, which I feel like is normally a, a summery drink, and it, it is January, and we're in New York, but it's a little warm today, so uh, this was requested by our guests, so we're rolling with it. Yeah, it looks great, much like the uh, color of the Robitussin I've been taking oh, for a God. week. <laughs> I hope it tastes better than that. <laughs> All right, cheers. cheers. And who are we talking to this week, Ashley? We are talking to Brad Onishi. He is the co-host of the Straight White American Jesus podcast. Quite quite the name for a podcast. Yeah, there. pretty epic name. <laughs> and the author of the new book, Preparing for War, The Extremist History of White Christian Nationalism and What Comes Next. Um, we're a little late for the, the January 6th anniversary with this conversation, but not too late. And it's still a topic of conversation in the country at large with our polarized political parties. Um, so we we get into that with Brad. Yeah, fascinating conversation. As we saw on January 8th in Brazil, right? Like this is an issue all around the world too now. But this whole idea of marrying Christianity and white nationalism and where does that where does that come from and, and sort of what are the features of that type of belief? Brad's super smart guy to, to take us through that topic. So uh, stay tuned for that. But first, we have Signs of the Times, the part of our show where we sift through the Catholic news of the week so you don't have to. What's our first story this week, Zach? Uh, so this is a really, I thought this was a nice story to bring this week. Um, Sister Andre is a French nun and the oldest person in the world known that we know of. Um, she died this week at age 118, which is ridiculous. 118. I know. I calculated. When I was born, she was 86. 86 oh my when I God. Was born. So even older when you were born. Yeah, so. and older than America magazine, you know. Wow. Yeah. So really impressive. <laughs> um what was what was her secret? So a little bit of bio sister Andre, uh, she was raised in a Protestant family in France, uh, born in 1904, that's right, before the First World War, and she was from a Protestant family with a very strict grandfather who was the pastor and gave very long sermons, so eventually her family stopped practicing and at age 27 she thought something was missing in her life and converted to Catholicism and then entered the convent at age 40. Yeah, and then went on to live through two world wars, uh, 10 pontificates, uh, Spanish flu pandemic, um, and was also one of the oldest survivors of COVID-19. She got it in 2021, uh, shortly before her 117th birthday, um, 
which I mean, she bounced back from that. Yeah, which she is, said she didn't even know. Like she didn't know if she had it. She got tested because she had to. <laughs> I know. It's just just ridiculous. I love that, you know, you mentioned her her family background a little bit, but she said one of the reasons she converted to Catholicism is because uh, she thought Protestantism was too strict. Um, and so Catholicism was more lax, which is not normally. <laughs> Especially for a nun. There are a lot of rules. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, I, I'm i thrilled that she found laxity uh, in our in our religion and um, man yeah. i'm what a what was her secret how did she do this well she had she had three secrets you're gonna like two out of three of them number one was working she she worked all of her life all right that's the one i don't <laughs> want <laughs> um and she said you know some people think work kills you she she said it kept her alive but i think more importantly she had wine and chocolate every single day yeah daily glass of wine and some chocolate um yeah no I, the working thing i'm gonna take that under advisement but wine and chocolate i can get behind that What's our next story, Ashley? All right. So this is not exactly new news, but it was new to me when <laughs> I learned in the wake um, of Pope Benedict's passing that he had had a custom cologne made for him um, by the Italian perfume maker Silvana Casoli. That's incredible. Um, yeah, it turns out that this is the same person that has made perfumes for celebrities like Madonna and Sting. Um, she revealed that she had been commissioned by the Vatican to create a custom cologne for Benedict. All right, now, um, you've obviously read the article about what it smells like, but I'm wondering if you had any like thoughts initially. Like, what's, what does a, a cologne for a pope smell like? Because, you know, celibate man, you don't really have to like, yeah. do, you don't have to really like attract people. It's just like, but you still want to smell nice when you're going about your day. What do you want to, what do you want to be smelling? Frankincense. That's a good answer. <laughs> Maybe it's just incense. It just yeah. blends in with that. I think that's a consideration you got to take, whether you're an altar server or a um, member of the clergy on the altar, you got to make sure your cologne mm -hmm. meshes with uh, incense. Yeah. But I actually think I would like Benedict's cologne even more than the smell of a of mass uh, because Silvana Cosoli said she took inspiration from the Pope's love of nature. So she said, quote, I thought of the smells the Pope would smell when praying at the Grotto of Lords and about his love for music, animals, green Bavarian forests. And I, I'm someone who tends to like more like I do, I do like piney smells, like Christmas smells. Mm. So I feel like I would I would be on board with the Pope's cologne. I, I thought because of Benedict's like scholarly like impact he had on mm. life, I thought it would maybe be more like leathery or Ooh, dusty library. Yeah, books. that kind of thing. Yeah, so I was thinking maybe he'd go for more of like a smells of uh, rich mahogany and many <laughs> leather bound books. But um, nature also a great smell. All right, I know what I'm getting you for Christmas next year. And stay tuned for uh, Pope Francis's signature cologne. <laughs> Would love that. That's going in the Jesuitical gift guide 2023. <laughs> All right, what's our last story, Ashley? All right, so we're recording this on Wednesday, but if you're listening to it when it comes out, it'll be Friday, which is the 50th annual National March for Life in Washington, D.C. Um, so this is you know, a big anniversary, but it comes at a very interesting time for the March for Life, which was founded the year after Roe v. Wade was decided in 1973, legalizing abortion throughout the country. And this comes, um, you know, the year after Roe was overturned by the Supreme Court. So in America, we've been asking the organizers and people involved in the march, like what they are thinking about the next chapter for the March for Life. Yeah, because the march had really been pretty focused around one goal, which was, uh, ending Roe v. Wade, right? And that was part of the larger pro-life movement's strategy. Um, I would say not everywhere, but that was a pretty significant portion of it, especially on the national level. Um, and it does sort of just make you wonder, like, well, okay, Roe is gone after the Dobbs ruling. So what's the point of the march now? And I know our colleagues have been talking about this. Um, 
Carrie Weber, who's been on the show recently, um, she's got a feature essay on americamagazine.org's website called The March for Life Has Always Had One Message and Roe v. Wade, What's Its Mission Now? Yeah, Carrie talked with the president for uh, The March for Life, Jeannie Mancini, and she pointed to a couple of things that they're thinking about this year. And one is even more focus on state-level marches. This is something that started in the last few years. Uh, I think 2019 was the first time that uh, there was a state-level March for Life that was had the branding of the March for Life. And those are going to be expanding as abortion legislation more and more goes to the state level. But she also pointed to the continued importance of, of having a national presence, not just to unite the diverse group of people who are pro-life and want to see maybe national measures, but to, to combat things that are already happening in Congress that might interfere with pro-life state measures. And I think another interesting angle here is the, the pro-life movement also is trying to decide what's its relationship to the Trump administration. And, you know, we're talking with Brad Onishi later in the show about, you know, white Christian nationalism. And there, I don't know, like there's a lot of that imagery at the March for Life. I'm not saying it's everybody there, obviously, but there's there's a lot of that. And I know our colleague Gloria Purvis talked to Jeannie also on her podcast this week, which you can go listen to. Um, and she didn't name, you know, President Trump by name or certain speakers, but like they have invited people who are, I would say, extremely polarizing um, and who've said some, I don't know, very like questionable, like and racist things to be up there on stage. And you have to wonder if this is an event that's supposed to unite a bunch of people that's not supposed to be like, it, you know, relevant to one political party how they're able to do that with uh, some of the baggage that they're carrying. Yeah, and Jeannie touches on that in her interview with Gloria, and it, it seems like her approach is very much this is going to be as big a tent as possible without inviting in people who are overtly racist. But, or, or, or biggest like pro-life tent possible, yeah, right? Yeah, right, 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 right. But it, it's a hard position to be in when you have one party that is nominally pro-life, <laughs> another party that's gone to the other extreme and has basically purged any pro-life voices from its ranks. And the pro-life party is also in bed with a really a lot of extreme, extreme anti-democratic voices. Trying to po police those boundaries, I imagine, is a difficult task, especially when it's a huge march and basically anyone can show up. Right. Yeah. And, you know, whether the goals are happening or not, to, I guess it's a different question, especially in this political climate, as you mentioned. But that, we'll wait and see. The march is uh, today when, when this episode comes out. Um, and I mean, they've got some, I would say, less polarizing speakers, certainly this year. You know, Jonathan Rumi from The Chosen is speaking. So is Tony Dungy, like longtime NFL coach. So um, in the past, they've like really fronted politicians sometimes. Um, and that seems to be less of an emphasis this year. All right. So Look for America's continuing coverage of that at AmericanMagazine.org. And stick around for our conversation with Brad Onishi. Joining us from San Jose, California, is Brad Onishi. Brad is a co-host of the Straight White American Jesus podcast and the author of the new book, Preparing for War, The Extremist History of White Christian Nationalism and What Comes Next. Welcome to Jesuitical, Brad. Oh, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. No, thanks for coming on the show. I was talking to my wife about this interview over the weekend, and I was like, oh, yeah, he's host of Straight White American Jesus podcast. And she just goes, are they for or against? <laughs> that's, that's 
I don't know if you guys think you get listeners sometimes that are expecting one thing and then they're like a couple minutes in, they're like, wait a minute. So the day I'm not, and I'm not making this up to be funny. The Daily Wire reached out a couple times to advertise and Fox News uh, had a new documentary <laughs> they wanted to plug on the show. So we, uh, and oh, I've wow. definitely had meetings with people where they're like, what are you doing? I'm like, well, I host this thing straight white American Jesus. And they're like, yeah, I'm not going to be your realtor. So I'll see you later, you know, or whatever it is. So, so yeah, we, we, we get it. Uh, that's funny. All right. Well, I'm going to start, I guess, in a more serious thought, which is uh, your description of January 6th, which I think will resonate with a lot of Catholics who are watching that day in horror and seeing not only Trump flags, but rosaries and Christian flags and a lot of just Christian Jesus imagery on that day when the Capitol was attacked. And you were prompted to think, but I have been there. So uh, I just maybe take us back to January 6th, what what you were thinking when you saw that event unfold. Yeah. So I, I'd had a really good morning. I got up and went surfing and it was really cold by California standards, you know, 39 degree air and 40 something degree water. But I was alone and I was just like feeling very buoyant take this like selfie, you know, there's a little sunrise in the background. It's just like a nice morning. And then I get home and uh, like everyone else, see the, the images streaming across the the screen. And uh, I, I want to talk about the religious symbolism and imagery uh, in, in a minute here. But I will say that for me, I thought, okay, you know, the guy who converted to evangelicalism at 14, the guy who went from a smart mouth kid to this like incredible zealot, would he have been there if this had happened in 19... 19- 99. Would he have sort of had someone in his church say, hey, I bought a plane ticket. Let's go. We're patriots. We're godly warriors. This is what we need to do to protect our country and our faith. You know, I also thought about like young people who converted at age 18 and got brought into a church setting where they were not just hearing about uh, the Bible or faith or, or, or Christ, but also about QAnon, also about Maga Nation, also about building a wall and eventually the big lie. And I wondered about them. And and if I had been born later, maybe I would have been somebody who would have converted at that time. Yeah. Or if, or if you know, the, you had YouTube at the time, or if they're hearing it, not even on in their congregation, but they're hearing it from people. I mean, now the internet is just like even more of a cesspool than it's ever been. So I imagine it's like the the risks of you know, being tempted by that type of extremist ideology are even greater than they used to be. I, I totally agree that it's been accelerated and it has been um, just exponentially increased uh, over the course of the internet age. So yeah, I was afraid, but that that was really my personal reaction. I want to go back to the, the flags and the symbols we we saw there. I don't know, do you do you think that's really representative of of where white Christians in general are? <laughs> you you said at some point that it was kind of like the logical endpoint of everything that has <laughs> built up over the last decades. And so I, yeah, I wonder like, do you really think it was inevitable, and what does that mean for us going forward? Worst case is yeah, is it a starting point and an endpoint? <laughs> you know, I think it it what I mean by inevitable there is that um, if you if you started in the nineteen sixties like I do in the book, and you go forward, and you see the ways that. Um, certain white Christian communities have understood themselves to have the, the nation stolen from them, taken away by immigrants and people of color and women and um, members of the LGBT community. If, if if you continue to see it through that those lenses, and then you have the Obama presidency, you can see how we got Donald Trump, 
uh, in terms of a majority of white Catholics and a, a huge majority of white evangelicals voting for him. And then when the election is is over in 2020 and they're just told over and over and over and over again that it's been stolen, it seems inevitable that we're going to have a group of people unwilling to accept that, that it is just not going to stand. And so in one way, it is an endpoint to a certain history. And in another way, I think it could be a beginning point because uh, as I try to show in other chapters, it's never been fully adjudicated. And there are ways it's already being memorialized. Uh, there are, you know, relics, there are rituals, there are martyrs in the story of the big lie and January 6th. And martyrs and relics and rituals are really good ways to get people to keep performing a certain story. And uh, I think we're seeing that happen. I want to break down like the the different parts of this. So title of your book is um, The History of White Christian Nationalism. And I'm wondering if we can maybe just start with you defining what Christian nationalism looks like for us. Sure. I, I think there's uh, a lot of great definitions out there. I use uh, the work of, of Andrew Whitehead and Sam Perry from Taking America Back for God. They really put uh, Christian nationalism on a spectrum, which I think is helpful. Um, and really the question I think to start with is, was the country built by Christian people? And that's a complicated history. And it, and I know that there are folks who were, we consider founders that we also might consider Christians, but oftentimes the story just gets leveled, right? And so instead of looking at the individual ethos of James Madison and George Washington and Thomas Jefferson and John Adams, we sort of just level it into Christian nation, Christian founding. That's our values, whatever that's supposed to mean. So was it built as a Christian nation by Christian people? And was it built for Christian people? And I think for me, that's a very simple definition. And it's one I like to use because it really um, takes the the bar of entry from like, I'm part of a militia that uses a, a flag from the Crusades. Um, I'm an oath keeper. I'm part of the Black Robe Regiment, right? It takes it from that level all the way down to that person who is in a suburban church, um, thinks that the, the flag and the cross go together, uh, really thinks that they'd be very uncomfortable if we had a non-Christian president or if they had somebody who was their senator, who was a Muslim or an atheist, if we took in God we trust off the money and so on and so forth, Christian nationalism really exists at that like mundane level. And it, it seems benign on that level, right? What's the big deal? Uh, you know, who cares if it says in God we trust or um, if, if uh, somebody thinks that they should have an American flag in their church. So there's a long line between that and storming the Capitol on January 6th. There is, but it, I think what we just talked about with the internet and YouTube and podcasts and everything else is that line between those people has gotten a lot shorter, right? They may go to the same church now. They may listen to the same shows. They may be part of the same kind of media sphere. And that's that's why I like to go there to the mundane because I think it shows us that the distance between those folks is not a, a chasm. And you, and you talk not just about Christian nationalism, but white Christian nationalism. What does that extra adjective add to this mix? Yeah, I think, again, I think there's great sociological work that shows us that like black Christian nationalists and white Christian nationalists often have some of the same theological views, but they have very different understandings of the country. One, one thing that Christian nationalism is, is a story about the United States. And the story that black Christians often tell is that it's a story that has never lived up to its creed of freedom and independence and equality for all, but it could, and it might, if we continue to work toward a more perfect union. It's a hopeful view. It's a view that looks at the future as uh, one that uh, marches towards justice to 
uh, bring in the words of Dr. King uh, near his, uh, his birthday and the holiday. White Christian nationalists on the whole, the data says, have a nostalgic view of the past that this country used to be great. The good old days, right? The, the happy days, the 1950s, this used to be a great country, but it got off track. And so, so we have to fix it. And they also have an apocalyptic view of the future. If we don't fix it soon, it's all going down. The country will no longer exist as we know it. And I think that apocalyptic view is really important because it justifies extremist action. If you think things are going to end soon and, and if you don't act like decisively, you're justified in doing things that are kind of extremist, do only in case of emergency kind of things, because you've convinced yourself that that's what you're in. You have this nice summation in the book that, for me, it described the ideology well, which is, quote, political opponents become demons, elections become end time events, and nation's history is viewed as a cosmic war with enemies of the republic on one side and God-fearing patriots on the other. The temperature just being turned up to that level. How did we? How did we get there? You, you uh, the book is a, a very thorough, broad historical survey of of, of the, that question, and um, want to encourage our audience to go read it. Um, we obviously can't cover all of that right now, but I'm wondering if you could maybe just take us to California, since that's where you are, that's where you grew up, where there's this like interesting breeding ground where uh, this new conservatism and evangelicalism come together. Yeah, I'll, I'll try to do this in a real brief way. But uh, in the 1950s, uh, you really have a, a what's called the Sunbelt migration in the United States. And that is millions of people leaving the South and leaving the Midwest and going to uh, places like Phoenix, pla places like Los Angeles and places like Orange County, California. Um, there was the defense industry that had moved there after World War II. So there was great jobs, there was great weather. And at the time, believe it or not, in LA or Orange County, there was really cheap real estate. So my mother and her family moved in 1958. And we are like pretty emblematic of the Southerners who moved there. By the 70s, there's more Southerners in California than any Southern state. So it really is a reshaping of the country. I mean, this is how you get to a place, among other factors, where LA County has more people than like 20 US states at the moment, and Orange County has more people than like 17 US states at the moment. What happens is, is if we just take Orange County, it's an unzoned land. There, there's no mainline churches. Um, the Catholic Church is is much less established in terms of its presence than in many other parts of the country. There's no main streets. You know, if you're in Pittsburgh, there's Polish neighborhoods, there's Italian neighborhoods, right? There's Irish sort of civic institutions. In the South, there had always been a large presence, for obvious reasons, of African Americans. You get to Orange County and you can create the country as a white Christian that you think you want. You can create the country that you, you convince yourself existed one time and no longer does. And so you really have the epicenter for like this distilled form of white Christian nationalism. And people may think this is crazy, but this is the region that gives us the John Birch Society. Um, and the John Birch Society, if you're like, what the heck is that, is the grandfather of QAnon. This is the uh, region that gives us Barry Goldwater as the Republican nominee. And if you if you don't know who that is, he's basically the one of the antecedents to Trump. It's the place that gives us Richard Nixon. So my hometown is Richard Nixon's hometown. My church is Richard Nixon's church. And it also gives us Ronald Reagan. And the airport is named after John Wayne. So uh, historians really look at the Southland of the mid-20th century as the epicenter of a new extremist conservatism. And it really did grow and, and begin to cultivate uh, in that place and, and go on to shape much of what we see in our politics today. Mm. What did they grow up together, this like evangelical 
megachurch phenomenon and this conservatism or did was one <laughs> leading to the other like what, what was the interaction between the, the politics and the faith no you you put it perfectly they grew up together and got married and it was <laughs> just a great wedding um <laughs> and so like some of y'all might know about crystal cathedral uh which is a very famous church right well at the crystal cathedral uh the very first services were in a parking lot because they didn't have a church so the robert schuler stood up on the snack bar of a drive-in movie theater. And uh, he said, hey, you know what? You know what God loves? Capitalism. You know what he also loves? Private property. You know what he also loves is individualism and not collectivism. He loves capitalism and not communism. God wants you to be wealthy. And he chose this nation as the greatest nation on earth to have a special mission in human history. That was the gospel that took root in Southern California. And now that's a pretty standard gospel, right? In so many Christian nationalist churches all over the over the United States. Uh, to me, it seemed just standard when I converted. I learned later that it was really a modern invention. Well, one of the takeaways I had from this book is that people see Christian nationalists and think that it's religious people influencing politics. And that's the part that really bugs them. But in a lot of ways, politics influencing religion, it, it's sort of flowing back the other way. I don't know what you're, if, if I'm totally off base with that or. I think it's a really dynamic relationship, but I do think that if, if one of the things we say on straight white American Jesus all the time is that it's a mistake to think that there's this circle labeled politics and another circle that's labeled religion. And sometimes they overlap and sometimes they don't. And back in the day, there was a Christianity, a religion not uh, touched by politics. I mean, we can go to the early church. We can talk about the Roman Empire, whatever it may be. Mm -hmm. There's no Christianity that ever exists in a vacuum apart from the political, right? Well, in the 60s and 70s, you have political operatives who are very intent on taking over the GOP and American uh, electoral uh, politics writ large, and they realize that white Christians, both evangelical and Catholic, are their key to do that. So they really devise ways to get the tens of millions of votes they need by way of issues related to reproductive rights and integrated schools and family values and sexuality and gender. So it's really, in some sense, a story of political insurgents shaping American Christianity into something that we now call Christian Trumpism or MAGA nation, so on and so forth. I think, I mean, as Catholics, maybe this is our own bias. I have generally associated Christian nationalism with more evangelical churches, but you just mentioned how Catholics and evangelicals were, were both a part of this kind of conservative takeover of the GOP. So is, is there a difference between a, a Catholic Christian nationalist and an evangelical Christian nationalist? I, you know, I think what you just said is really important to note is that without the coalition building between evangelicals and Catholics in the 70s and 80s, we wouldn't get to where we are today. So uh, the night the night before January 6th, there was a Jericho march uh, in Washington, D.C. that was very influential on that day. And it was organized by two people. One uh, was an evangelical and one was a Catholic. And I really think that's a pretty good symbolism of kind of that coalition over the last 40 years. I think there are differences, of course, in the ways that evangelicals and Catholics have experienced American history and been treated. And evangelicals have often been persecutors of um, Catholics of all stripes in this country. Which is, the, I just find that fascinating that it sort of that it goes from that relationship to to this like marriage that you talked about. It's a common enemy, right? If we if we can identify a common enemy, then we can become allies and we can really 
um, start to kind of uh, make headway together. Why, why would we fight you if, you know, and, and I, I will be honest, you all, you all asked about white Christian nationalism, why white? And it's because largely it, it breaks down, you know, there are white Catholics who feel as if they've been left behind in the country. They sort of use their Catholicism as, as a means for sketching out how that's happened and why it, it needs to be rectified. And that leads to a way that they can kind of make an alliance, right, with certain white evangelicals. So um, I think the flavors are different. I think that you're going to find evangelical churches with flags and and army paraphernalia and camo gear and things that are, are missing uh, from most, if not all, Catholic parishes. But uh, there are, of course, many... Uh, pro-Trump uh, Catholic priests and, and leaders, and um, they're very good at forming alliances with Pentecostals and Christian nationalist megachurch pastors and so on and so forth. Is there um, a Christian belief or a creed or doctrine that you think both of these groups are per, like commonly attracted to that might be genuine or they might use as cover for a, a, an underlying political belief? You know, I think one of the, the, the ones that I, is easiest to point to would be uh, Matthew 5.14. You'll be a city on a hill. And uh, in 1630, John Winthrop, the, the first governor of the Massachusetts Bay Colony, said as, as he and his com, you know, compatriots got on the ship, we, you know, we will go and we will become a city on a hill. And uh, that was picked up by John Kennedy, our first Catholic president. It was then picked up by Ronald Reagan. Uh, Newt Gingrich loved to talk about it. And now you hear it all the time. Could be a senator, could be a state congressman, a mayor. But let's think about the city on a hill metaphor. In that metaphor, in that instance, it's Jesus telling his disciples, you will be a city on a hill, right? So I, the Savior, and you, my followers, will be the light to the world. If you tell it as an American politician, you're saying, I, somebody who holds kind of authority and power as a symbol of the United States, am telling you that we are a symbol to the, to the world. This has been used to really cultivate American exceptionalism, the idea that this country is superior than any other and has been chosen by God for a unique purpose. And therefore, its people are superior. And however, the city on a hill has now gone dark, or it's become dim, or it's become shrouded. Some people have gotten into the city that don't belong. Some people are now vying for representation and rights that don't deserve them. And we're no longer not really supposed to be part of the city in the first place. We might need to build a wall around the city because it's just kind of getting a little too much. So that city on a hill metaphor can be used by Catholics and, and Protestants alike to dig into Christian exceptionalism and really build into the kind of Christian nationalism I'm talking about. However mistaken that theology might be, in terms of what that says about our country's history. It was kind of founded by religious fanatics who were <laughs> fleeing persecution in England. So, I mean, was that just baked in from the beginning? It, or, I don't know, it just, it seems like I can understand why people would look back and be like, yeah, we were founded by uh, Christians with very interesting views. <laughs> yeah. So I think, I think that's, you know, what I tell my students is like, that um, is something that is totally a part of the United States and its history, right? So, you know, when people say leftist professors are always trying to erase our history, right? It's like, nope, not at all. Um, we have Puritans who are uh, trying to, uh, you know, find a place where they can, in their minds, practice their uh, religious faith in a way without encumbrance. Uh, we have even, you know, Catholic folks who are down um, in a place like Maryland, right, say that are doing the same thing. We have Quakers, right? Uh, eventually we get Pennsylvania. So by no means is there an erasure of that history. 
I guess for me, what Christian nationalists do, though, is they don't have any time for the details or the nuance, right? So they don't have any time for the fact that uh, Thomas Jefferson, who they would love to quote, uh, gave us a Jefferson Bible that like got rid of all the miracles and all the the supernatural stuff and really looks nothing like an orthodox Christian approach to faith in any way, Catholic or Protestant. We could talk about the deism of other founding fathers. And I think what what I would also just want to throw in and what I do with my students is say, so you're saying you're a city on a hill and then there are instances of attempted genocide or something close on Native Americans, right? So when you encounter Native American communities and there's attempted genocide, what you're telling me is the way that we've been a city on a hill is one that says we'll destroy the others that we take to be trying to get to our city if we need to. And so I'm always going to include that part of the story. I'm always going to talk about um, the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882 or uh, Tulsa 1919, obviously, uh, you know, the enslavement of African Americans and Jim Crow, Japanese incarceration. So we can do the city on a hill if you want, is what I tell folks. I'm just saying, let's do it all. You know what I mean? And if we do it all and we're honest with ourselves, then I think we have to kind of take account of uh, what kind of example we've been and what kind of example we want to be going forward. Brad, I want to go back to your personal story a little bit. Um, you mentioned earlier in the conversation your your conversion to these sort of like evangelical Christian nationalist communities. I'm wondering what was first attractive to you, you know, when you're a teenager and you, you sort of come into this community? Yeah, I was 14. Um, I got invited to a youth group Wednesday night church by a girlfriend. And I just thought, perfect. Yeah. Tale as old as time. <laughs> same, same here, man. And right. Um, yeah. I had been getting in trouble and stuff. So there's no way if I said, Hey mom, it's Wednesday, I'm going to go to my girlfriend. She would have said, yeah, right. You're not getting your room. But if I said, Hey, I'm going to church. She was like, sounds good. Maybe they'll straighten you out. Um, I, I found like, uh, you do in many mega churches, I, I found cool leaders. They had tattoos, they played guitar, they were into punk music, they liked to surf. And I was just like, whoa, that's neat. And, you know, I was also this very angsty kid, like prone to depression, prone to just thinking about the meaningless of life, right? I was a walking book of Ecclesiastes and they provided me answers to all of my existential questions. And those answers were direct and absolute and clear. And they provided a community to belong to. And I was like, this is great. I don't have to do any of the long division existentially. I don't have to like go through the hard process. I, I've been given all the answers and this clears up everything. So let's go. I'm in completely and I will live my life according to this teaching as best as I can. Even if it's awkward and people stare and they think I'm weird, I, I don't mind because this is the right way and I'm, I'm ready to go. And what opened your eyes to the water that you were swimming in? I, I think like all of us, you get to be out of adolescence and you start to realize that life's more complicated than your your kind of reduction of it to binaries, right? To us and them, to right and wrong. Life is complicated and it's nuanced and it's hard. And there were just these instances where I thought, as a community, we continue to treat things that are so important and so vital to the human condition as just kind of either or. Uh, I, I'm old and uh, older than both of you. And I was going to vote for John Kerry in 2004 and over George W. Bush. And I told people at church that, and they were like, look, that's, you can, if you want, he might help some people who are underprivileged economically. He might do some good things for schools, but you're going to be voting for the murder of millions of babies, period. And so if you want to vote for a murderer, go ahead. And I remember getting into that voting booth and I was just haunted. Like, 
I don't want to vote for a murderer. That sounds terrible. But is this really how this works? And I walked out determined to live a faith and a life that did justice to the complexity of those really pressing moral issues and existential questions and to no longer reduce them. And so once I resolved that, it was only a matter of time before I wasn't going to fit in anymore or be welcome. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> well, one of the th- one of the things I think is interesting is that um, other people that go through this kind of unlearning of certain of their religion, it's usually because they are spending time outside of religion. And you are going through this as you are going almost deeper into it, right? Like you are going further into your studies um, about religion. And I, I, I kind of have a similar thing in, um, I don't, I don't think I was, I was not in a white Christian nationalist community, but like anytime I have new beliefs that are sort of at odds with the people that raised me that also share my Catholicism, I feel like sometimes they're at a loss to argue with me on stuff because now I'm doing Catholicism professionally. So they're just like, I assumed that if you went further into this, you would have just like agreed with me extra. It's, It's a really distressing thing to figure out that the further you go, um, the less kudos and bonus points you get, sometimes you actually get demerits, right? And so you'll show up at church or in your community, as you just said, and, and, sort of tell everyone all the things you've learned by reading Teresa of Avila, right? Or Meister Eckhart or digging into the history of the Trinity. And they're looking at you like, nope, this is, we're worried. This is, this, you're going to, we know where this goes. You're going to have some ideas now that uh, don't match up with our community. And there is troubled waters ahead because you now are thinking about theology and history and philosophy. And, you know, one of the things that people always say is like, well, you were never a Christian to begin with if this is where you ended up. And my response is, I'm a done, not a never was. I'm a done. Like I gave it all and the center didn't hold in terms of my evangelicalism. It's not that I was a never was. In fact, I went so hard that uh, you all told me that I needed to pull back. Otherwise this would happen. And you were right. Well, I want to talk about that because so in your book, you tell one story, which is, you know, this, this mix of nationalism and Christianity and Catholics and politics. And it all culminates in January 6th, this horrific event with like patriotic and Christian symbolism. So that's one story of the past, you know, 50 years. But the other is people leaving religion in really large numbers. Many like yourself who are nuns or duns. And then many of the evangelicals who did vote for Trump, I think it's been found, you might, maybe don't go to church that much. Um, so do you see those things as in conflict or actually related to each other? Like the, the decline of what I would call like real practicing Christianity and and the rise of this political Christianity. So I think on one hand, it's a success story. So hear me out. I think that if we go back to the the time I was talking about earlier, the 60s, 70s, and 80s, and you really have the marriage that you mentioned, uh, Ashley, about uh, you know political operatives and religious communities, that marriage was so successful that their values, their more moral uh, stances, their policy positions on everything from abortion to guns to immigration is now um, so standard that for many people that those are just Christian values, right? And I know there's so many Christians in this country that are, they shake their head and they're, they're not my values and I'm a Christian. But for the large part of uh, the United States, those values are just synonymous with Christian. And so, hey, I haven't been to my church in a year. I haven't opened my Bible in five years. Um, never got around to getting my kid baptized. But when you ask me about my Christianity, 
I'm going to tell you about guns and Im- immigrants. I'm going to tell you about flags and crosses and, uh, and reproductive rights and sexuality and gender because those themes and issues have become so u- ubiquitous that you now don't even have to set foot in churches, right? Or participate to have that Christian nationalist identity be the story of your life and your, uh, your understanding of yourself as an American. I think on the other hand, you really have a lot of young people who see their religious institutions as not being willing to meet them where they're at. And so we have had the rise of the, the nuns and the duns in, in, in a certain sense. And so um, I don't think they're actually the same story, but I think they are both related to, in some ways, a success, uh, at least in my view, <laughs> an, in, an unfortunate success of a certain brand of Christianity in the country. And in, in other ways, a, a kind of... Uh, uh, failure on on uh, certain religious institutions' part to kind of meet folks um, where they're at and to kind of understand what they need when it comes to thinking through their identities and their lives and and so on. One question I had reading your book and listening to the pod is like, what's a non toxic way to integrate your faith in politics? We've not interviewed any white nationalists on this podcast on purpose, or that I know of at least, but we we definitely talk to people that are more politically conservative uh, on that end of the spectrum who are who are faithful, thoughtful people. What's a good way to do that? You know, I really like some of the ways that Raphael Warnock talks about it. You know, he talks about, uh, we have an American creed, don't we? You know, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We're a country built on equality, independence, and liberty for all people. Uh, we're a place where regardless of your uh, ethnicity, your race, uh, your religion or non-religion, uh, your gender, uh, you have been promised, right, the pursuit of those things. And our laws and our policies and our leaders uh, should uphold that promise and try to live it out. So if, if I'm a religious person, uh, you know, what I want to say is that my Christianity, my Catholicism, my whatever may be, it leads me to an Americanism that is based on those values and that creed. And if I think about uh, uh, living and trying to build a more perfect union, I think about a perhaps a mystical union, since we're talking about Jesuits, right? Like if if we want a mystical union of the United States, well, it's one we're always pursuing, like Gregory of Nyssa in the life of Moses, but maybe one we'll never achieve. We may never get there, but we're always going to look forward to to trying as hard as we can the next day with all of our neighbors with all of our brothers, all of our sisters, all of our non-binary um, American friends and, and, um, and communities. And so to be a person of faith doesn't mean I have to be a Christian nationalist. In fact, it can, it can mean that Christian nationalism um, seems to be antithetical not only to my faith, but to my nation's founding. And it might be the most patriotic thing I could do and the most Christian thing I could do to uh, manifest something else. All right, so since you started that answer using a Democrat as an example, do you think there are healthy examples of conservatism that integrate faith and politics well? So I think, you know, one of the things that we maintain on Straight White American Jesus all the time is that um, it is possible for that to be true and it's possible for that to happen. But I think what we've had, especially over the last five or six years, is, uh, if not longer, is a situation where we have only two parties in this country that really elect people. We have one conservative in the GOP and one supposedly liberal in the Democrat uh, Democratic Party. The GOP is really now the party of extremism when it comes to the things I'm talking about and white Christian nationalism. So here's what I would say is those folks who have tried to do what you're saying, Zach, 
are often finding themselves on the out. You know, it is really, John McCain is gone, but it would really be really, really hard to be John McCain in the contemporary GOP, I think. I think it'd be really hard to be somebody who uh, is trying to reach across the aisle because so many of your colleagues have moved so far from the aisle. They've chosen the seats in the arena that are nowhere near the aisle that your arms don't reach that far. And uh, they did that intentionally. And so it's totally possible. I'm just not sure I'm seeing it practiced right now. And the folks that are trying to practice it, like Adam Kinzinger, perhaps in certain ways, or Liz Cheney and others, and and I'm just for the record, not a huge fan of Liz Cheney's um, in terms of her views, but she stood up to Trump and was out. I mean, we really have a party that is like, if you, if you cross the leader and you don't line up with uh, certain core principles, um, you're just gone. We just don't want you like, please go somewhere else. And that's what makes that particular iteration of conservatism, I think, difficult right now. If there's a solution or a way forward, where do you, where do you think it comes from? Just because I'm just, the further polarized we get, the more siloed we get as a society. Is there is there a healthy way into maybe correcting some of those views? I would say that from my view, we're in a place where extremism has become mainstream in one political party. And it's been, it, that has happened by way of decades of organization and rhetoric from uh, religious and political and cultural leaders. And so I think one thing we have to do if, if we are people who uh, are for a multiracial, multi-ethnic, multi-religious, pluralistic democracy, if that's what we want, I think we have to realize the situation we're in and that uh, the kinds of conditions that we're living under, that's, that's number one for me. I think number two, there's really a, a kind of responsibility to face up to the fact that white Christian nationalism is very much about whiteness. And unless that other white Christians, those who, who don't consider themselves part of that group, um, are, kind of see it that way, then there's really no chance to kind of tiptoe around and fix anything and provide solutions. Um, there has to be a real reckoning with whiteness as a, an incredibly powerful tool for religion in the United States. And uh, third, I would just say that um, there are chances to outstrip the demonization and the conspiracy. There's chances to get out in front of the rhetoric and the lies, um, but it takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of commitment and it takes a lot of patience. And again, um, for those folks who would consider themselves Christians, if you have Christians in your lives with whom you have a relationship and they are part of um, maybe some of these movements, uh, there's a chance you can ask them why they're so angry, why they're so hurt, why they're so hope, uh, resentful, and ask them how they feel. And maybe they'll give you a chance to do the same. And they'll see you as a human being, right? Not as uh, somebody who smells like sulfur, like Alex Jones said, or who has serpent DNA, like, you know, they might have read on a blog somewhere, or who is a godless baby killer, like they probably, you know, saw on YouTube the other day. So I think those things are all really important from the personal to the civic. Uh, and it's not it's not easy work, but it's the work we have to do. All right. Well, on that very constructive note, um, we will let you go after one last question that we ask all of our guests, which is if you could canonize one person, living or dead, Catholic or not, fictional or real, who would it be and why? Oh, goodness. I... I knew this was coming and I didn't prepare for it. So I'm just going to tell everyone that I'm a professor. I did not do the homework. and uh, <laughs> I, But I will give you someone who has uh, sort of become somewhat um, uh, adored by various Christians uh, since his life. But during his life and after, in the immediate aftermath, was uh, largely on the outs. 
and that was Origin of Alexandria. So I teach courses on Origin of Alexandria, who was a second and third century figure, um, wrote one of the very first uh, commentaries on the Song of Songs, and did so as a male ascetic, a male monk and, and mystic, uh, by playing the female role in the Song of Songs, and thus set the table for a thousand-year history of commentaries on the Song of Songs by folks uh, such as Bernard of Clairvaux and many female mystics to really think hard about uh, gender and sexuality and faith and a mystical union with God and Christ's body. I just love teaching Origin of Alexandria. Not somebody who's always been viewed with the most love, I guess, by uh, certain parts of the church and certain parts of, of the Christian cosmos writ large, but somebody who I've, I'll always I'll always love reading and always love teaching other people about. It shows how little I know because I just assumed he was already a saint. Yeah. <laughs> Didn't wasn't he on the outs on like a pretty early like Christological debate? Totally. He, he was on the losing side, right? That's, yes. I think that's why. If I'm remembering my no my undergrad days. Okay. You pat you pat you you got an A. <laughs> um, wh- where should someone start if they want to dig into origin? I mean, you can pick up a lot of things, but I think the the commentary on the Song of Songs is great because um, you can see the Christology on display. But as you read the Song of Songs or Song of Solomon along, or the Canticle of Canticles alongside him, you start to see what he's up to. And it gets really, really fascinating really soon because you realize that there's no way he was going to make Christ the female character. So he needs to play that role. And he says that the church and, and the individual are both sort of involved here. It could be one soul or, one's, uh, or the church as a whole. Um, but then the language of ecstasy and uh, union comes in and you realize what's happening too. And you're like, whoa, this is this is a thing. This is a whole thing. Well, you don't have to prepare if you've got that ready to go. It's like a pitch for, <laughs> <No>. <laughs> for origin. I love so. Meister Eckhart too. Meister Eckhart's like my guy. I'll always, I don't care where you are. If you can read Meister Eckhart's sermons, um, they'll make your day better, I think. So, yeah. All right. Yeah. Well, again, uh, Brad is the host of Straight White American Jesus, the podcast. You can find that where you're listening to this one. Um, and author of the new book, Preparing for War, The Extremist History of White Christian Nationalism and What Comes Next. Uh, Brad, thanks so much for coming on the show. Oh, thanks so much for having me and for great questions. People are nice, but it's only for the tips. The weather's fine, but it's nothing I would miss. My only friends are the ones I left behind. Wish I could see segment. Do you want to introduce it, Zach? Yes, I do. Um, So this is normally where we'd have housekeeping, um, but decided to do a little rebranding. So here it comes. All right. Now it's time for parish announcements, the part of the show where we ask you to please be seated before the final blessing. (laughs) Uh, I can hear everybody groan now and look at their watches. Uh, But we we only got a couple this week. Uh, First, we want to Thank our new Patreon supporters. Um, had a, a number of people come in over the New Year holiday. So a huge thank you to Daniel Dunn, Sierra Bigwin, 
Chris Ragone and Chris Kinkor. Um, you might recognize Chris's name because he is the creator of the, the Living Google Doc of all of our uh, canonized folks that guests on the show have made. Um, he's been in our Facebook group um, making updates to that. So if you're ever curious on some like data analysis about who people have canonized on the show, uh, Chris is your go-to source on that. Yes. So thank you, Chris. Thank you all of our new patrons. And thank you to the entire Patreon community. Uh, we're so grateful for the support you're able to give to Jesuitical that makes this work possible. Yeah. And one more. Um, this has come requested many times and we talked about it in our mailbag episode about what is our like song transition music where do those song credits come from well our sound engineer kevin christopher robles has come through so kevin put together a google doc which he's going to update every week we'll link to it in the show notes but it's got like song title artists guest date so you'll be able to like consult that anytime you're like wow that was a banger i would like to add that to my spotify playlist uh, all right. Well, thank you, Kevin, for all the work you do for the show and for putting that together for us. And now we have As One Friend Speaks to Another, the part of our show where we talk about where we're finding God in our lives this week. Uh, this week, we decided to, I know we're a little bit late on the New Year's <laughs> resolutions, but we wanted to talk about maybe new prayer resolutions th- this week. Yeah, um, I'll go first um, and talk about sort of where it's coming from, too. Uh I felt like 2022 was a great year for me uh, in a lot of ways, but it felt very like I was flying by the seat of my pants in a lot of ways. Like I did a lot of traveling, like I kind of did my COVID rage traveling super hard in 2022. I felt like I was um, going somewhere, like hosting people a lot. And uh, it's really, it can be really hard for me to be contemplative when life is like that. It's like, it's like going to the gym. I'm always really good at going to the gym until I start to travel and break my routine. And then I'm all of a sudden really bad at it. And, um, prayer is like that in a lot of ways for me. And so this year I'm trying to get a little more rooted. That's kind of the word I'm focusing on. Like not necessarily staying home all the time, but trying to remind myself of what my grounding is. Um, how do I want to start my day? Like checking in, like on my relationship with God and those types of things. So, uh, I don't have a ton of smart, actionable goals on that yet, um, which is what I thought Eric was going to ask me what my goals were. But it, like a real Jesuit, he was he sort of asked a different question that was even harder to answer, um, which was, where's that desire coming from? Like, what's the thing you're lacking? What's the thing you want? Um, which is why I was able to kind of formulate like, oh, well, I felt like I was missing this last year. But at first I was just kind of like, oh, I want to pray more in 2023. And that's not really like a a useful resolution in any, any, any measure. Um, If you don't have a resolution, you can't break it. Exactly. (laughs) Precisely. Uh, Speaking of, do you have one? Um, Yeah. So I I would say mine is also not quite a resolution, but um, I entered into the new year feeling pretty um, at sea when it came to my faith. Uh, Like I was going through the motions a lot. I, I couldn't really remember why exactly? I, what like why I was like I felt bad about going to mass, but not remembering like what like when was the time when I loved going to mass? Like what 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 drew me here in the first place? Um, and so I was I was thinking about like trying to dig back in, through my memory for a time where I did feel feel that connection to my faith and feel grounded and and close to Jesus. And it just happened that I was having these reflections. Um, uh, after the passing of Pope Benedict, and and I thought back to the time it was a few years ago when I borrowed your your book, <laughs> the Introduction to Christianity by Pope Benedict, which is just like, it's 
I don't, I don't want to say it's Jesus 101, but it, it kind of, it goes through the creed. It states what we believe and, and what that means. And I felt like I'm at a point in my life where I've kind of traveled so far. And so I think what I really am looking to do in the new year is kind of go back to basics, um, whether that's just, you know, reading uh, like Lives of the Saints or just more basic theology and spirituality, but I, I think I need a little bit of um, remedial education at this point in my faith life. Or the Gospels, or some the would gospel, say. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. To back to, it's such Stuff a Catholic like dodge yeah. to be like, oh, <laughs> skirt around all these things. Uh, I was wondering why the you have a copy, my copy of Introduction <laughs> to Christianity on the podcast Well, when we were desk. prepping for this, you mentioned that I never gave this back. Yeah, you're like, oh, I love that book. And I was like, that's my book. So thank you for returning it. <laughs> My, I might borrow it again. Oh, that's it. right. I yeah. guess that is your resolution. So I'll see that never. <laughs> All right. I will get us out of here. Jesuitical is produced by Sebastian Gomes with production assistance from Kevin Jackson and Cristobal Spielman. Our sound engineer is Kevin Christopher Robles. Faith formation provided by Father Eric Sundrup. You can follow us on Twitter at Jesuitical Show. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash Jesuitical. Please subscribe wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And if you're on Apple or Spotify, leave us a review. Jesuitical is recorded in the William J. Loeshirt Studio at American Media in New York City. For American Media, I'm Ashley McKinless with Zach Davis. We'll see you next week.